0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Don Marge. Today we're talking with a Missouri politician who's giving potential voters food for thought and advice. That's Jason Kander, former Missouri Secretary of State. He is currently running for mayor of Kansas City. This after a loss in his 2016 run for the U.S. Senate. Many believe he has a national political future. He has written a book just out that could signal that kind of ambition. It's titled Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I Have Learned of Everyday Courage. He joins us from Kansas City. Jason Kander, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Congratulations on the book. I know it's just out, but I'm sure it's going to get a lot of attention here in the state of Missouri and probably elsewhere.
1: Uh, it's been really fun. I, I've appreciated the reception to it. Thanks.
0: You know, when politicians write books about personal courage and say they want to help save the world, cynics say they're just uh, priming the pump for the next big election. A lot of people believe you're looking beyond being mayor of Kansas City. Are you?
1: No. I'm very excited about the prospect of being mayor of my hometown. Our, our, our town's experienced a, uh, a lot of progress over the last several years, and uh, I want to make sure that progress continues, and I want to make sure that everybody in my in my city can see it and can feel it. Um, as to uh, cynics, they you know look they should read the book because I think what they're going to see uh, is that not a lot of politicians have written books that uh, spend a page and a half doing a thorough analysis of the harumph scene from Blazing Saddles. I think they'll <laughs> see it's it's not your average politician book by any means.
0: Well, I I would disagree with that, quite frankly, because uh, a lot of politicians, that I can think of almost all of them, uh, have written books kind of like this. Yours is certainly different, but they're kind of, uh, you know, painted the best picture of themselves.
1: Well, I mean, one review referred to, uh, to the book saying that uh, I, I, uh, I think, portray myself as an occasional doofus who learns from his mistakes, so, and that was, to me, one of my favorite reviews, so... <laughs> Oh,
0: Barack Obama has called you the future of the Democratic Party. What What did he mean by that, and what did it mean to you?
1: Well, it was very nice of him, and it meant a lot to me. I, I'm, the last thing I'm going to do is uh, try and interpret um, President Obama's meaning in anything that he said, uh, particularly about me. But, uh, you know, it meant a lot to me. Um, it, he's somebody who uh, really went out and, and said what he believed and, and never became cynical. Uh, And it's certainly something that I would like to emulate.
0: You know, Outside the Wire, the title of your book, means leaving your safe or or comfort zone. What are some examples do you believe that you've done this in your your political
1: life? Well, you know, one of the first uh, examples I give in the book that I write about is how when I first got to Jefferson City as a state legislator representing Kansas City, you know, I had just come from doing anti-corruption, uh, anti-espionage uh, work, you know, investigations that kind of thing in uh, in Kabul in Afghanistan, and then I found myself in Jefferson City, and obviously that was a, a great deal safer. Uh, but I found that there was plenty of anti-corruption work uh, to be done in Jeff City. This was two thousand nine. Uh, not that that's changed a great deal, um, but you know, when I started doing that, as I write about it in the book it's not exactly something that was welcomed by, both, by, by either party. I mean, I was you know, one of the only folks there who was refusing to accept personal gifts from lobbyists. Not, I wasn't self-righteous about it or anything. I wasn't that loud about it. I just wasn't doing that. And, and I was saying we should change a lot of these rules. And, and there were people who, uh, who would say things to me like, well, you know, you're right, and we should do all that, but I don't want to lose my chairmanship or even in some cases I don't want to lose my parking spot. And so they wouldn't, I mean, literal, where they parked their car. And so they wouldn't take on um, the establishment neither either party. And so that was one of the first times for me. And on top of that, I mean, another example I give in the book is, uh, and, and by the way, the book is not a recitation of, you know, the greatest hits of Jason Kander. It's it's a book of lessons, not of rules. It's It's also largely about times when I did something and I thought, well, I could have done that better and and went back and, and looked at how I could have done it. But another example of sort of going outside the wire politically, when I ran for secretary of state in Missouri, uh, all the polling showed that well over 70%, close to 80% of Missourians disagreed with me about requiring a photo ID in order to vote. I feel very strongly uh, about it. We can get into that if you want. But My team said, hey, it would be great if you would just side with the Republicans on this. And I thought they were wrong, and I refused to. And it turned out that a lot of people, even though they disagreed with me on the issue, saw that I was genuine about it, saw why I believed it, and voted for me even though they disagreed with me on the issue. And I used that in the book to... Just sort of demonstrate that if you'll get out of your comfort zone, you have the opportunity to make a difference
0: I think uh, given again uh, what i've I've read in your book you made some political enemies, I think with some of the things you've written you don't always mention names, but uh, you don't hesitate to to uh, point out some of the things that you think were
1: wrong yeah, I tried to not um, try to not be uh, i don't know petty at anybody um, but I do there were a couple points where you know it, Everybody knew who I was talking about anyway, so I did use the name. But I, I didn't say anything that uh, wasn't 100% just what happened in a meeting, kinda let the meeting, kind of let the reader draw their own conclusion. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for instance, I, I tell a story in the book. It's kind of a two-part story because a large part of the book is just really about what I learned uh, as, um, as a military intelligence officer uh, and particularly in Afghanistan that I took to my service uh, as an elected official. And so early in the book, I talk about being in a meeting – uh, in Afghanistan, in Kabul. Turned out I was meeting with this uh, corrupt Afghan general and uh, my colleagues and I were not entirely sure we were going to get out of the meeting alive. And then cutting to uh, a few pages later, I'm writing about the Speaker of the Missouri House at the time pulling me in to try to sort of brace me and get me to uh, to change what I was, you know, to, to basically apologize to him for doing something that I thought was right. And I just sort of drew the the comparison and, and pointed out that Given my perspective, having been just a couple years at most removed from that meeting uh, where I was worried I wouldn't get out alive, I didn't find uh, a politician in Jefferson City to be all that terribly intimidating.
0: Well, uh, a number of the people, I think all of them that I can recall, that uh, you, you treat like this in the book, were Republicans. If you become mayor of Kansas City, a lot of these folks are still in positions of authority and power in the state legislature. How do you think that's going to play out if you're mayor of Kansas City and dealing with the legislature?
1: You know, I've always actually had really good, I mean, though I've frequently had big disagreements, I've always had pretty good relationships uh, across the aisle. I mean, for instance, um, there's obviously quite a lot that I disagree with Governor Parson on. um, But, you know, when we were in the state house together, we worked together on things. When I was secretary of state and he was a state senator, uh, he carried a major piece of legislation for us and we worked very well together on it. So um, I anticipate being able to work well with folks just as I did. I mean, when I was in the state house, we would have big disagreements, the Democrats and the Republicans, but I also worked with the Republicans to make big changes to the human trafficking laws in the state to uh, make them more effective. Um, Got some things done actually on on campaign reform, though the the court ended up going backwards on it. It did eventually pass on the ballot. So, you know, disagreeing with people, um, I even write in the book about the importance of honestly disagreeing. You know, people can pretend that they agree, but if they actually disagree, it just blows up in their face, and you can't build a relationship. Whereas, if you know the areas where you disagree, then you know that the person's being real with you, and that the areas where you're working together, they're going to stick.
0: Well, given what you've just said, um, give me some sense of how you're reading the national political picture at the moment.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, as far as the political if wins, was,
0: the, the wins, and the uh, the polarization, and the rhetoric.
1: Well, the polarization and the rhetoric is something that I think everybody spends quite a lot of time on, and we don't need to belabor it. it it's not good. I'm not happy with it. I don't like. Um, I don't like the tone that the president of the United States sets at all. I mean, heck, probably I got my phone on airplane mode right now, but I imagine when I take it off at the end of this interview, there's probably going to be some tweet from him that's, you know, disappointing. So we don't have to dwell on that. What I will say is that. Um, what is going on right now in the country is that uh, while the president and uh, his his party are, are in power, um, it is the Democrats who have the momentum. There's just no doubt about it. I mean, if you look at the special election results, the way Democrats have been overperforming. And what I try and remind everybody, though, is that the blue wave that people speak of, it's not a weather event. I mean, you can't sit back and watch... You know your local weatherman come on, and, and or whether uh, your your meteorologist, I should say, to keep it, uh, you know, gender neutral. Your meteorologist come on, and they're not going to tell you well. There's a front of democratic enthusiasm and progressive activism. They're going to mix together, and all of a sudden, a bunch of folks are going to win, and the house is going to switch hands. That's not how it works. It, it, you make a wave, and you do it by going out and knocking doors and making phone calls, and that's what I've been encouraging people to do. I I, I am running for mayor here in Kansas City, and in the meantime, one of the most important things that we can do here is we can make sure people like Claire McCaskill get reelected. And so I'm putting a lot of my energy and volunteer effort into that, just as I did uh, to get people out with me knocking on doors to vote no on Prop A, which fortunately uh, was a successful effort.
0: There are an awful lot of women running uh, across the country this time out. Uh, and you mentioned Claire McCaskill. Obviously, she is one of them. What do you make of the, the, the role of women in, uh, in this year's elections?
1: Well, the role of women in elections every year ought to be the fact that they are 51% of the population and should be represented as such, um, not just at the ballot box, but, uh, you know, in actual elected positions. I, You know, one of the stories I tell in Outside the Wire is about how uh, when I was a uh, when I was a kid and my mom picked my brother and I up from, from baseball practice, and, and it was an important lesson she taught us because she's driving us home, and she asked us, she said, hey, uh, what would you all think about a, a girl being on your baseball team? And we were young, and... We said, oh, no, that'd be wrong. And she asked why. We said, well, tradition, girls don't play baseball. So, you know, we weren't old enough to drive. She was driving. She pulled the car over, and she said, well, I guess you all better walk. And we said, why? And she said, tradition, girls don't drive. Uh, So, look, I I think that um, I'm excited about some of the candidates, uh, you know, uh, so many of the candidates out there right now, like Stacey Abrams and um, in Georgia. Uh, over here on the, on the western side of the state, just across the state line, Sharice Davids just won her primary to take on Kevin Yoder for Congress in Kansas's third district. I think she's a great candidate. There's just a lot of really outstanding candidates. In fact, uh, Stephanie Shriok, who is the president of EMILY's List, is actually on the, on the advisory board of my organization, Let America Vote. We talk on a regular basis. And the amount, I mean, the, I, I can't even quote the recruitment numbers. I can't remember. They're, they're so high compared oh, to past years. Yeah.
0: Well, along these lines, one of our listeners has contacted us and asked uh, to ask, when you decided to enter the race for Kansas City, a uh, Kansas City mayor, it prompted one of your former legislative colleagues, Jolie Justice, to leave that contest. Well, some critics said this was an example of a Polish male politician pushing a qualified female uh, off the bus.
1: Well, you know, Councilwoman Justice and I have been friends for a very long time. We have a a similar vision for the city. You know, sometimes I think people forget I was the first elected official to endorse our current mayor, Sled James, and and Jolie was the second. Um, So uh, one of the things I'm most excited about uh, moving forward is if I'm fortunate enough to win and and hopefully Jolie wins re-election to the city council. And which I think she will. And if both of those things happen, we're going to get the opportunity to work together again, just as we did in Jefferson City. Uh, I have to take a break. But
0: before I do so, I just can't resist asking this as long as we're talking about women. And this is a a national picture once again. What do you make of what you've been hearing about uh, Omarosa and what she's been saying the last couple of days about making recordings in the situation room and calling everybody in the White House a liar?
1: Uh, you know, I'll be really honest, I haven't thought about it that much, but I suppose one of the things you could, uh, no matter what you think of what she said, uh, at the end of the day, I guess you could just meditate for a moment on the fact that Omarosa was a senior advisor to the president of the United States, and and that made a lot of sense to the president and his team at the time. I mean, perhaps the point there is that they haven't exactly attracted, um, well, I guess I would just say I don't think they're running a, a ship-shape operation there.
0: Well, I guess a lot of people would agree with you. It's uh, quite remarkable that somebody could get into that room, a secure room, and make a recording. Our guest is Jason Kander, former Missouri Secretary of State. He is the author of the book Outside the Wire. He's going to be in town tonight, by the way. He'll be speaking, signing books, and, uh, and talking about it at the Ethical Society on Clayton Road at 7 o'clock tonight. So if you'd like to hear more, uh, be there. We'll come back and continue our conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
1: Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach.
0: Welcome back to our conversation with Jason Kander, former Missouri secretary of state and author of the book Outside the Wire. You know, um, you mentioned early on that when you came in as Secretary of State, one of the things that you were most interested in was corruption in Jefferson City, and you indicated that a lot of it is still going on. Can you be a little more specific about that?
1: Oh, I just meant you know, obviously we just went through quite a quite a situation with our with our former governor, uh, and look. I'm not serving in Jefferson City right now, so I admit it as more of a passing reference. I just – I figure if, if I were talking about how when I was in the state legislature, I was working on anti-corruption issues, and uh, and if I were to act as though I had been successful in cleaning it all up and just sort of said, oh, yep, got that taken care of, I think there might be some people listening who thought that was a little bit out of touch, so –
0: well, speaking of people listening, uh, I'd like to invite people who are listening to get into the conversation. If you'd like to, give us a call at 382 That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at org, or if you would prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. As a matter of fact, we have a caller who's been waiting. He's calling from Mexico. So let's break. And that's not Mexico, Missouri. That's Mexico, Mexico. Uh, Dennis, you're on the air. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, Dennis. Actually, I'm. I mean, yes, yeah, I am. Uh, I am actually in town uh, trying to tidy up things from, uh, from my past forty years or whatever. Well, it says you're but,
0: calling for Mexico's, but I'll well, take your word no, for it. No,
2: that's no, that's where I live now, most of the time.
0: So. Okay, go ahead, Jerry.
2: Dennis. But, okay, uh, I just wanted to, uh, you know, I've, I've been watching Jason Kander for a long time, and I really appreciate. I, I, I told the answer there that I I liken him to Jerry Brown. I Appreciate the way he, he seems to approach things, and 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 was, is more than willing to reach across the aisle and do what you got to do, but also is is uh, is ready to do it. And uh, I think by going, becoming, uh, running for mayor, uh, it it's it's getting down there in the nitty gritty, and uh, it's, uh, and I hope personally that it will be a stepping stone towards the future. I have one more thing I wanted to share with him because I know he gets on national TV. And my thoughts on DACA, which is a little bit away from here, is that the DACA students and people that are into that situation probably pay more taxes than Donald Trump. So we'll leave it at that.
1: Dennis,
0: thank you for the call. Uh, Jason, go ahead and respond.
1: Well, I, I appreciate the support. I, uh, I hope Dennis decides to go ahead and uh, and and relocate back uh, and, and come on home particularly you know he's welcome here in kansas city uh, but i guess what i would say is i, I do appreciate the compliment very much um, i'm very focused on uh, doing the job of mayor and really right now i'm focused on trying to get the job of mayor uh, and hopefully i'll be successful you know it is a fantastic opportunity i mean i hope folks who are listening to this right now uh, you know go ahead and, like, the Cardinals were just playing here. We had a lot of tourists from from St. Louis. You don't have to wait for the Cardinals to play at Kauffman. You can come over anytime, check out the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, some Gates Barbecue. I could go through the list of all the things to do. Um, But I I love my town. I'm excited about it. And uh, as for what he said about about DACA, I guess one thing I would say is that if you look at the the issues, um, the whole panoply of issues out there, uh, the whole smorgasbord, what I would say is so much of it comes back to We all just really want the opportunity to be able to have some success, or at least the choice of having success where we are from. And that's a big part of why I'm I'm running for mayor. Now, if you liken it to what he brought up with DACA recipients, I mean, DACA recipients are people who this is the only home they've known, the United States of America, and and they want to be able to have success and stay here in their home, the United States, And, and here in Kansas City. I want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to have success without having to you know, possibly move out of town or across town in order to do it. And, uh, and so at each level, I think it's really about us all as Americans trying to make sure that we just have the opportunity to have success in the place that we're from and, and that our kids are able to have that kind of success so that they don't necessarily have to move away for opportunities. We're all just trying to have our families near each other and, and be prosperous you know, within a 20-minute drive of each other.
0: What kind of a Hispanic population do you have in Kansas City?
1: Uh, We have we have a substantial one, yeah. Um, Yeah, and and it's uh, it's a lot of it geographically located, sort of on the west side of town. And then there's a a pretty substantial, like an even heavier, or at least percentage-wise substantial population, probably just based on percentage, uh, on the uh, just west of the state line, Wyandotte County. So, like where I went to high school, there was there was a, a high Latino population. I have a lot of friends on the west side of Kansas City, and they've invited me to go knock on doors with them in their neighborhood, which I'm I'm excited to do.
0: Is, is this uh, whole issue, the immigration issue, one that's a part of the campaign for, for mayor?
1: Hasn't been at this point in terms of a, a major issue that people have brought up. Um, you know, our issues, we have some things that are, uh, I think everybody kind of agrees on a, a similar set of facts, which is good. You're not seeing that all the time in, in national politics. Um, you know, we have a, a new airport terminal that we need to work on. We need to make sure that's, that's available. Uh, to Kansas Cityans, um, and that it's done efficiently and and uh, effectively, that, that we get that work done by as many Kansas Cityans at good wage jobs as possible, and then we we're trying we're hoping to expand the streetcar. We've taken a step in that direction. Um, we have uh, the GO bonds, which are a, a great infrastructure package, and then there's other things. I mean, between crime and income inequality, uh, you know, and and just general equity across the city, we have a lot of work to do, but. But we've also made a lot of progress, and so it's an exciting time with a real opportunity to do some good.
0: Hey, you know what you have to do? You have to get a PGA tournament in Kansas City.
1: I had that work out for you all. It was fun to watch it. I caught a little bit of it on TV.
0: Yeah, it worked out very well. Everybody's very proud of the way it worked out. Tremendous crowds, great reception. Uh, The city's very proud of itself today.
1: Well, good. Yeah. Good.
0: Okay, let's take another call. Harry is calling from University City. Harry, you're on the air. Yes, uh, I'd like to ask the candidate to talk a little bit about maybe how he got started in politics, and also from the uh, viewpoint of the average person getting involved in politics. It takes an awful lot of money to uh, to to run for office, and so I'd like the you know the candidate to talk about that a little bit, um, especially if that was an issue for him
1: when he was first. Breaking into politics—certainly
0: something he addresses in his book. But go
1: ahead, Jason. Well, the candidate is more than happy to do both. I appreciate it. Let's uh, let's start with the first, like sort of how I got started. Um, philosophically, uh, probably the most formative thing for me was—you know—I grew up comfortably. There was nobody in public office who could take food off my family's table with a decision. And then the first time I was actually in the position of being on the receiving end of bad decisions made by politicians that negatively affected my life, I was in the back seat of a vehicle with no armor in Afghanistan, knowing that a lot of resources had been sent to Iraq on what I believed to be politically driven decisions. And that change the framework through which I see political decision-making. They're real stakes. And that, that happened to me very young. It's not a hard luck story. It, it's a story of somebody who was able to live outside the wake of political decisions all the way into my mid-20s. Uh, and so I'm very conscious of that. Um, and then as to the second part, the role of money in politics, it's something that I've worked on a great deal uh, in my career, trying to change uh, the system. And I, I tell some stories about it in the, in the book about how One story I tell, for instance, is just about how absurd the system is, is that the way it would work is I'd be in so many of these fundraising meetings back to back 30 minutes at a time. It was like speed dating. And you're sitting in these meetings and and as running for the U.S. Senate in a competitive race. You end up, nobody likes to talk about it, but the truth is you end up having to fly all over the country to do it, which is obviously not an ideal system. So I'm sitting in these meetings and, and about part of the way through, I would frequently realize to myself that it was going real well. But I could not remember the name of the person I was sitting across. Yeah. And I was always really worried that they would just look me dead in the eye and say, quick, what's my name? And one day I'm I'm in one of these meetings and, and this fellow looks at me and he says, do you know John Smith? And I was pretty sure this was John Smith. So I thought, oh, this is it. They're calling me out on it and I must not know the name. And so I didn't know what else to do. So I said, aren't you John Smith? And he looked at me like, that was a pretty dumb thing to say. So then he said, yeah, I'm talking about the other John Smith. And, uh, and then I just cracked up laughing and it worked out OK. But uh, I ended up walking out of there with a campaign contribution and an introduction to the other John Smith. But I tell that story in the book to point out that there's no way that this system we've devised is actually making people better at the jobs that they're running for. If, if 96% of the time uh, when you're running for a major office particularly, you've got to raise a lot of money, if you spend 96% of your time with folks for whom America has worked out great, there's no way you're getting a good, accurate picture of what people are going through. And so what we need is we need to we need to take the system in a direction that makes it so that politicians spend the vast majority of their time with people who could never get on the schedule of the people who politicians currently have to spend their time with.
0: Well, take that one step further, if you would, with regard to what the solution is to this problem. We've got Citizens United. Uh, given the shape of the Supreme Court, that's not likely to change. The system's not likely to change uh, at all. What what else can be done to uh, to change it?
1: Well, quite a lot. I mean, you know, legislative bodies can police themselves. They They keep – they love – legislators love to throw up their hands and say, oh, well, you know, can't do anything about it. The truth is, whether it is real campaign contribution limits, real systems in place to rein this in, or, you know, public financing of campaigns, which I do mention in the book as a possibility, um, you know, it's something that should be tried out at various levels. Because the truth is, this system, the way we've, we've set it up... And it's not just the campaign finance aspect of it. That's one of three parts of our democracy that really needs a reboot. You've got the way campaigns are funded, but you've also got the way redistricting works uh, or doesn't work. And then you've got the way uh, primaries uh, operate. And, you know, a a good portion of that, not all of that, but a good portion of that is actually addressed in the Clean Missouri plan that's going to be on the November ballot. So if this is something people are interested in, I would strongly suggest they take a look at that. And and, uh, I, I, for one, will be voting in favor of it.
0: The, the notion of having legislators uh, correct the system to which they uh, from which they benefit uh, doesn't seem like one that would work to me.
1: Well, that's why you've got this on the ballot. I mean, because, uh, and that's why, really, yeah. this is something that is only controversial in 51 buildings in the United States, the U.S. Capitol and 50 state capitals. Everybody who works outside of those buildings thinks that this makes all the sense in the world. This whole issue of
0: gerrymandering, to which you allude, is one that you address in your book. And... It's another one of those issues that people talk about a lot, but I wonder if there's anything on the horizon you see that might correct this particular uh, situation.
1: Well, it's, it is something that's addressed in the Clean Missouri Plan, yeah. um, but it, in, but if you look around the country, there are states that are taking steps. Michigan has something on the ballot in November, which I refer to as peacefully overthrowing the government of Michigan. Michigan has uh, its of two, it's I think Michigan and South Dakota are really the two most gerrymandered states in the country because not only are the congressional maps drawn by the state legislature, which is frequently done, but on top of that, the state legislative maps are drawn by the state legislature. Mm-hmm. So you have politicians setting the rules of the game mid-game, and that just—I mean, this is like having criminal defendants serve on their own juries. I mean, sure. it don't make any sense.
0: Would a nonpartisan commission be the answer to it? Do you think in in various states? If it
1: yes, and but here's in my ideal situation. Here's what it would look like, uh, something like this. You know, you take the jury system. I don't know for any, for the people listening, anybody who's either um, been a part of a jury trial or served on a jury. One of the things you notice is that you take this somewhat random selection of citizens, you bring them in, and uh, and a judge instructs them and imbues them with a real sense of civic duty. They take it very seriously. And if you were to do something similar with the redistricting process, you'd say, look, here, just like with a the jury, there'd be certain information that would be prejudicial, that would be, you know, would would sway the jury too much so you don't give it to them. Like, for instance, the address where the current representatives live. That don't matter. It, I mean, heck, in Missouri, we got term limits on legislative seats. You can only serve for eight years. The map lasts 10 The district doesn't belong to the people who represent it. It belongs to the people who live in it. So it shouldn't matter what the address is of the representative. You just draw the the lines based on what makes sense, what's fair, uh, and then you're going to get a much better system. And by the way, probably both parties are going to hate it, and that's going to be a real good indication that you've nailed it.
0: That's a good sign. I I think personally it's one of the most important problems to solve or situations to solve in the country with regard to our politics.
1: I totally agree. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's talk now about something very close to your heart and uh, on which you're working very hard, and that's your organization, Let America Vote. For folks who don't know what that's all about, tell them.
1: Sure. So uh, as probably most people listening know, I was the secretary of state, the chief election official of our state. And so I saw the GOP voter suppression playbook up close and personal. And it's got three parts to it, three steps. Step one, they undermine faith in American democracy. Step two, they create obstacles to voting. Step three, they create obstacles to the obstacles. Now, historically, the way that's been dealt with is in court, and that's still really important. But what has changed is that with President Trump taking office, he's appointing the judges and he also put Jeff Sessions in charge of the Department of Justice, which means the United States government flipped sides from being on the voter side to the vote suppressor side in every major case. So what we did with Let America Vote is we decided that it was time to expand the argument on voter suppression for voting rights, expand that argument. Uh, beyond the court of law and into the court of public opinion. So that's what we do. We create political consequences around the country for politicians who uh, make it harder to vote.
0: One of our listeners, Caitlin Rice, can Jason open a Let America Vote office in St. Louis?
1: Well, we actually have the Capgown Vote program, which is an a Let America Vote program, uh, which is in both St. Louis and Kansas City. And uh, we're excited about it. What Capgown Vote is, people can go to capgownvote.org. And uh, it is a, a program uh, for um, high schools to compete against one another nationally. We have a leaderboard at the website, and it's to get as many uh, graduating seniors uh, registered to vote before they graduate.
0: I'm being facetious when I call Chris Kobach uh, of Kansas your friend but he's <laughs> right he's right in the middle of one of these things right
1: now I'm sure you're watching that closely I am watching that closely, but uh, for a lot of reasons, but the primary reason of which is that uh, I fully intend to, I'm working very hard, knock on wood, to become the mayor of Kansas City um, this time next year. And uh, the mayor of Kansas City, just as the mayor deals with um, the governor of Missouri primarily, you do have interactions in that job, uh, important ones with the governor of Kansas. And I'll be very frank, I do not consider uh, governor, (laughs) I don't even, I almost Uh call him Governor Kobach, my God. Well, I hope that doesn't put anything out into the universe. Secretary Kobach, I do not consider him to be a responsible actor uh, in in anything that he's done. And uh, that's one of many reasons, um, you know, why I would be uh, very much hoping that he is not successful in his quest.
0: Well, you mince no words with regard to him in your book. That is clear. Uh, Only a couple minutes left. I want to bring in an email from Maxwell calling from St. Charles. He asks, how would you support commuter rail projects in Kansas City? And Missouri, and the nation as a whole.
1: Well, we have the streetcar. Um, you said it's Maxwell. Um, so Maxwell
0: and St. Charles
1: is the name. Of Maxwell. The car. If you get a chance, hop on I seventy or, or go to Lambert and fly over. Come on over and, and, and give us a, a look. Um, I think you'll really enjoy uh, the streetcar. I mean, it was recently featured in the New York Times. Um, so that's one aspect of it. You know, that's that's, and we need to. We're looking to expand it. Um, I'm hoping. I mean, we're going to need the federal funding in order to do it. But beyond that, uh, I want to look uh, in our next transportation projects and in transit, I want to look to the east side of Kansas City. And what I'm hopeful is that as time goes on, for instance, if, uh, if, there are some, uh, if there's some redundancy, if there's some savings uh, that continues through the streetcar, then I want to take that into primarily to begin with um, increased bus lines. We've got them. That- you know, for folks who have visited Kansas City, they'll understand the Prospect uh, Max is something that's in the works. It's exciting. Um, And I think we can do more than that. So, you know, it is not a question of what kind of transportation. It's a question of connectivity. And I think no matter where you are, St. Louis or Kansas City, the objective here is to, for me, is to get people uh, from their home to work without them having to walk a very long, uh, very long way, make it as accessible as possible. uh, That first mile question and then get them home. I mean, I want people to be able to get to their job, do their job, and get home to be with their families.
0: Well, I'd like to end this uh, this discussion on a light note. Uh, there is one tale you tell in your book that I think is just that, and that is the time that uh, that uh, former Governor Nixon and you were traveling, and he made you his designated drinker. Now, you've got to explain what that's all about.
1: So, uh one of the one of the uh, lessons in the book. I mean, I'm I'm very proud of the fact that the book made Jimmy Kimmel laugh. I I, uh-huh. I, I like it to be a little bit of a lighter read for folks, and uh, and so one of the uh, lessons in the book is that you know you you never you should never sacrifice or never compromise your integrity uh, in politics or in life, but you do often uh, need to compromise your dignity to advance the cause, and that's okay. And we were in China, we were uh, doing some, uh, we were trying to make sure there was some, some deals available for Missourians trying to, to, uh, bring home some good investments that Missourians could make and could make money from. And what we, uh, what the governor did is he, he said, you know, cause they, they want you to drink at every business meal in China, it turns out. And the governor wanting to keep his wits about him. Uh, I was with him. I was in the house at the time. He said, well, you know, Candor here is my designated drinker. <laughs> and I'm actually, I drink very rarely. I'm I'm not very good at, you know, like I, I, I'm Like I had two beers and then I'm I'm like I have a hangover the next morning. So it's something I do very seldomly and it's usually about two beers. And so we're over there and and he declares that this is what I can do for my state. And so, uh, yeah, that was the situation is I I found myself – Um, having to do that. And it turned out, you know, it worked out pretty well. We were able to do a lot. And he said to me afterwards, uh, he he said, you know, thank you for your help. But he also said every time I saw him after we got home, he said, you look a lot better now. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, not what I expected to be doing for my state, but I was happy to serve.
0: A lot of politicians would covet that assignment, I think, and and non-politicians as
1: well. Uh, Probably the smart ones wouldn't uh, even put it in the book, though.
0: Any truth (laughs) to the rumor that you're going to reassemble a rifle during a campaign for uh, mayor of Kansas City?
1: Uh, no, you know, I did that in order to make my argument for gun control, and I'm glad people heard me. But uh, I think that's I think probably not something you do more than once. I think people have gotten the message on gun control. Hey, I think it,
0: I think it puts you on the national political map. <laughs> no question
1: about that. Sure, I don't, I don't, I don't mind that. Uh, I don't mind that I got the opportunity to make that argument. And people heard it. No, no, no doubt about it.
0: I want to thank you, Jason Kander, for being with us on the program today. Good luck in your mayoral race in Kansas City. Thank you. A reminder that Jason Cannon will be talking about Outside the Wire and signing books at the Ethical Society on Clayton Road tonight at 7 o'clock. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.